Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to The Connection, a weekly radio program where we share our experiences and expertise with stories of caring, courage, and change right here in Connecticut. Listen to learn about needed resources to improve your well-being and transform your life. Now, here are the hosts of The Connection, Lisa DeMattis-Lapore and Ann Baldwin. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another program of The Connection. I'm one of your hosts, Ann Baldwin, president of Baldwin Media. My co-host, Lisa DeMattis-Lapore, um, is taking some time off, so she couldn't be with us today. But we've got this covered because we've got a great uh, conversation lined up for you this morning, our listeners. We've got Claire Bien, who's the Associate Director of Fund Development at The Connection. But more importantly, uh, for our discussion today, we're talking about a book that you've authored, Claire, called Hearing Voices, Living Fully living with the voices in my head now before you explain what this book is about i have to say it's one of those things it's a maybe a stereotypical um observation on my point i've met you several times uh, through my work with the connection and after getting a copy of this book i'm like this can't be the person that i've met several times this book can't be the story of the person that i've met it's like when people meet me and i tell them that i'm in recovery that I've got, you know, seven plus years um, in recovery from alcohol, they're like, that can't be, or we never knew that about you. It's one of those things. But how beautiful it is that you've taken what you've learned from this and you've put it into this beautiful book. So thank you for being here. Thank you for being open and honest. And uh, thank you for putting a voice to probably something that a lot of people deal with out there, but don't know exactly how to deal with it. Yes, that's absolutely right, Anne. And I am really thrilled to be able to be here. And it really is thanks to my supervisor, Beth Connor, who is the chief strategy officer at The Connect. And of course, part of the reason that this book is possible and really um, some of the recognition I've got as a result of it has been because Beth has been very supportive of uh, various volunteer activities that I've done. And and gradually over the years, um, some of those volunteer activities have actually become a part of my work. And you said a bit earlier that you were really flabbergasted that I am a person who um, has had a number of psychiatric diagnoses and that um, the the array of symptoms that I've manifested throughout my life and particularly during three extended by that I mean over a year long cycles episodes cycles of acute psychosis um, is because part of the reason I've done so well is that I do present well. I'm able to cover very well. I'm usually, except when I'm highly, highly symptomatic, able to be articulate and maintain a facade of normalcy. 
And that because of the phenomenon of stigma, um, or rather because I am able to maintain that facade of normalcy, the absence of stigma has allowed me to uh, function at a higher level. Because when we are challenged and questioned and scrutinized about what might be going on, whether in fact we, you know, are being crazy right now, or you know something is amiss, then we tend to retreat within ourselves and then coming back out of that period of self-doubt, um, those little shells and walls that we were erect around ourselves when we're feeling vulnerable becomes ever so much more difficult. So let me ask you, because as, as I read the book, so again, the, the title of the book is Hearing Voices, Living Fully, Living with the Voices in My Head. So I want to focus on the subtitle here, Living with the Voices in My Head. So Claire, you're you're not in your 30s now. Is it safe to say no. that? Okay. <laughs> I'm in my 60s You're now. in your 60s. Well, you look beautiful. Um, my question is, so what happened? This didn't really take over from what I read in the book until you were in your 30s. Yes. What happened to you when you were in your 30s? When I was 31, my first cousin who had grown up in China committed suicide, and I had partial responsibility for her. And the combination of guilt and shame that I felt over my role in bringing her to the, to the United States as a student um, with the ambition of studying English and nursing and getting a great job and then eventually bringing her siblings out of China one by one, which was her parents' ambition, combined with the fact that I had at the age of 31, not really settled into a proper career. I've, um, you know, essentially been the black sheep in my family. And that combination of a lack of career, um, the fact that I was not able to support my cousin in the ways in which she needed to be supported, um, contributed, you know, if manifested itself in voices that were external to myself. And I believe that I, um, throughout my childhood and, you know, adolescence, I always had that quiet inner voice that I called instinct. And I think it was probably a little bit more prominent than it may be in some people. But I didn't begin hearing the negative voices external to myself until that period of guilt and shame and doubt about, about every aspect of my being. So you think that was like with my alcoholism, that was your trigger? Yes. That's what triggered. So you, did you actually hear voices in your head? I did. I heard voices external to myself. Prior to that, you know, I had that quiet, still vo inner voice that some call instinct. And um, it really and often is, you know, our own self-talk. And I was always very, very aware of my own self-talk. And I would tell myself all sorts of things and sometimes beat myself up. But I always knew that it was me. When I was 31, I began hearing voices that seemed to come from my environment, from other people um, in my vicinity. And when I first started hearing voices a few months after my cousin committed suicide, they, it was really only when other people were around. But then my husband and I moved to New Haven, Connecticut. And I, my, after my husband went back to um, Princeton, New Jersey, he was a book editor and uh, for to complete his notice period. So I was alone by, um, in our apartment trying to settle into New Haven looking for a job and that sort of thing. 
and I began hearing voices when other people were not around. And isolation is a known trigger mm. for voices. So, you know, at first the voices were um, those of family members, my sister talking about what her children were doing, you know, when her husband was going to come home, what my mother was doing. And it was kind of comforting, but as I began paying more attention, the voices became more negative. And I think probably as I was beginning to worry about the kind of job I would be able to find in New Haven and et cetera, et cetera, and that, you know, degree of distress, stress and distress, you know, elevated, some of the voices began being negative. And the first, one of the fir first really negative episodes that I had was when I was, I got, very quickly got a job freelance writing for the New Haven Advocate and um, also doing some freelance photography for the Register. I was writing an article about a North Haven artist and projecting slides of um, her paintings onto the wall. And um, while I was doing that, you know, I was sort of thinking about my intellectual and emotional response to these gorgeous portraits of viruses. Um, I heard children coming home from school and the windows were wide open so I could hear them and I stopped and my husband and I had been fantasizing about starting a family so I thought oh what will it be like to be pregnant and become a mother and as I started listening to the children's voices they turned mean and they said she stares at the wall all day and and pulls her hair she's crazy and I thought that's not true. I'm sitting here trying to write an article. But I was so upset about what those children's voices had said that I closed the window and turned on the fan and went back to my work. Eventually, the, the negative voices became um, multiplied. And um, I, by Halloween, the weekend before Halloween, I thought that I had been followed to Boston to visit my eldest sister and mother. And um, when I came home on Halloween day, I was taking uh, an editing test for a job. And at some point, a quiet, friendly little voice whispered in my ear, you missed something, Claire, two paragraphs up in the middle of the paragraph. And I thought, okay. And I looked and saw that sure enough, I had missed something. So I thought, oh my gosh, I'm being spied on. And I, of course, I had thought I was followed to mm -hmm. Boston the previous weekend. So, so at I, this point, Claire, let me ask you. So your husband has to have noticed that, yes. you know, this isn't the Claire probably that he married, yes. that this is going on, that you're hearing these voices. Your family probably had to notice that there, there was something amiss, yes. even though you, you said you're the self-declared black sheep of the family. So, um, did anybody label you as crazy at that point? No. Um, that, well, <laughs> um, no, they did not label me as crazy. You know, certainly it was, you know, oh, Claire, you know, Claire's always good for comic relief. That's a little dig at my eldest sister. But my husband was certainly concerned about me. And unbeknownst to me, he had, in fact, been calling my eldest sister to talk about his concerns and what he might do. And she had suggested that he um, get me to see a psychiatrist as soon as possible. And of course, when I um, thought I was being spied on and looked for hidden cameras and smashed light bulbs and then told my husband we had to call the police, he suggested that instead that I call my eldest sister. And she told me um, that 
she and her husband thought that I should see a psychiatrist as soon as possible. And of course, um, the obedient youngest daughter, youngest sister that I am said, oh, okay, you don't think I'm being followed and nothing's fine on. So I did. We, I, we went to the ill health plan that night and the psychiatrist I saw insisted that I commit myself to a private psychiatric hospital. That did not work for me um, in part because I, I didn't feel at that point that I was crazy. And I signed myself out against medical advice after the 10-day self-commitment period was over. But within a week of being in New Haven, I knew that I needed to be hospitalized. So I put my name on a waiting list for Yale New Haven Hospital. And eventually, after about th another three and a half weeks, um, by the beginning of December, I was admitted. By the time I was admitted, I had um, I had go um, gone into various periods where I lost time. I would go into reveries, and when I emerged from those reveries, I would find that I was raising welts, which would subside to form bruises. So something was going on, and I don't think I was so out of it that I was hitting myself in order to raise those bruises. So it, it's very troubling. Were you on any medication at that point? I was not. And I was, let's see, I was drinking um, one or two glasses of wine or one or two beers a day. But that's pretty much it. Um, so, but I think it was just the level of distress that I was feeling over uh, my lack of prospects and, and again, my, my guilt and shame over my cousin's suicide. Right. And then you did up, end up having a son. I did. You did. What happened is that when I, um, my various diagnoses, which I have not yet mentioned, were major depression at that first hospital at Yale New Haven, um, schizophreniform disorder, which is like schizophrenia, but, you know, has some of the aspects of schizophrenia, but isn't quite because I was able to, um, I was organized, I was able to carry on a conversation, etc. most of the time. Um, and... I was medicated, placed on Haldol, which I hated. I placed was, on what? Um, a, a, a well-known and still used antipsychotic or um, psychotropic medication called Haldol. Um, but Haldol left, stopped the voices immediately. Hmm. But it left me feeling so wooden and lethargic and just completely incapable absent personality, incapable of feeling joy or love. Or no emotion. And no isn't emotion. that the thing with some of these medications? I know, yes. you know, even during my recovery, they, they suggested different medications, but something sad would happen and I didn't cry. Something, you know, exciting would happen and I didn't laugh. You know, it, it just, what good is it to be a shell? to be just exactly. a walking around as a shell because these medications, you know, they may stop one problem, but they create so many other things. It's yeah. like it's not a reality. Okay, I don't mean to interrupt with your story. So then then what happens? So How old are you at this point? At that point, I am uh, 32 years old. Mm -hmm. And I was able to get better. When I was at the hospital, um, a social worker suggested that I look for jobs um, when I... Um, was discharged. And of course, while it's not well accepted that people you know, who hear voices who are diagnosed with these um, serious mental health conditions can hold jobs, um, I had had a history of working. So indeed, I did. Why was a job so important to you? Well, it gave me a reason to get up in the morning, a reason to stay organized and focused on um, what I needed to do during the day. 
and it also helped bring in um, some income mm-hmm. because my, you know, my husband was by then a magazine editor, not a book editor, and was not. And we were pretty fresh out of graduate school, mm-hmm. so we were still paying off student loans, and we had very little right. money. But I like your I point too. It's a reason to get up and show exactly. up. You know exactly why people say, "Why don't you have a home office?" Well, our operation's too big. One, but two. I would never do it. I would sit in my pajamas all day and get absolutely nothing done except for maybe a couple loads of laundry. Yes. So 20 years ago, I made that conscientious decision. I'm not working from home unless it's snowing like a banshee, then I will. But that's yes. really the only exception. Okay, so then you, you get what you need uh, it, while you're hospitalized. And yes. they put you on this medication that makes you kind of unemotional but yes. stops the voices. Then what? Then um, when I was discharged from the hospital, I got a job. Then I got a permanent um, uh, job at Yale and was pretty quickly promoted um, to the managerial and professional ranks at, the Yale, um, at Yale University. And what happened is that because the medication made me feel so wooden and lethargic and you know, not myself, I did what I needed to do to taper the medication and wean myself from it. And th- I, I do believe that that's what saved me. And the way that I was able to do it is that I had a history of therapy. You know, although I didn't start hearing voices external to myself till I was 31, I had been depressed since I was probably in my mid to late teens. And there was, had been a time when I felt that, you know, a darkness um, seemed to be um, a part of myself you know, that I tried to keep at bay. And sometimes quite successfully, and other times not so. Um, so I was able to taper and wean myself from the medication. And uh, after I'd been off meds for about a year, um, my husband and I decided again that we could start a family. And the um, our my GYN said, "It's been a year. You should be the medication should be out of your system." And in 1986, I gave birth to a beautiful baby boy, who's now 31 and mm-hmm. living and working in Chicago. And he's the you know, he's the best thing I've ever done in my life. Um, but so part of the reason, and I I did have two more acute cycles of psychosis of um, a year, year to two years in 89, 90 and 2006, 2007. But in between, there were stretches where I didn't hear voices at all. And then other stretches where I'd be slightly symptomatic, but I was able to manage. And I'm at the point now where I'm um, sometimes symptomatic and if I choose to cultivate my voices um, or and you know and I do that I check in with them and in fact my kind sorry my kind voices have begun um, really guiding me in the way that and they, and they feel different than me and it, but it's they're so close to me that I can't quite tell they could be siblings they I often think that there are other people. So all of this sounds really weird to your audience at this point, um, but and I um, and I I do need to say that the reason um, that I'm so willing to speak in these terms is that there's an extraordinary movement that arose in um, 
1988 and called the Hearing Voices Movement, and it was established when a Dutch psychiatrist had a patient who wanted to talk about her voices. And hitherto, people, um, so the professionals felt that talking about the voices was dangerous because it would cause the voices to proliferate, and that was a very bad thing. But this patient, um, uh, Dr. Marius Rome, was the psychiatrist, and the patient Patsy Haig insisted, and they, as they, he, he finally relented, and as they began talking about it, learned that the difficult voices in Patsy's head were the voices of difficult people in her life, and the most difficult voice was the voice of her mother, who had been rather abusive when she was growing up. So as a result, um, they began working, and over um, years and decades, um, a whole movement called the Hearing Voices Movement arose where a lot, there are a lot of people like me in the world who are living full lives. Um, many, many in the um, humans are in the mental health profession, you know, supporting, uh, forming support groups to help other people learn how to understand and deal with their voices. And really, the voices in our heads are the difficult people, you know, do represent the difficult voices in our lives. Sometimes our own m most, uh, most, uh, my, my people, most people that are closest voices. to us, right. Yes, and sometimes ourselves. If you're just tuning in, we're speaking with Claire Bien. And the title of her book is Hearing Voices, Living Fully, Living with the Voices in My Head. Where can folks get the book if they're interested in reading your whole story? It's available on Amazon.com and also BarnesandNoble.com as well as the, through the publisher. And I... I want to ask you a question, though, yes. because I don't want to run out of time before. There's a couple of things that have kind of sparked my interest. So you weaned yourself off the meds. Yes. What did you replace those with? Therapy. And therapy has been an absolute essential um, to being able to live with the voices, to live with a, live a full life. I do have a master's in counseling psychology, so I was aware of, you know, many of the, um, you know, uh, treatments, the, you know, the various philosophies of um, mental health care, and I was able to apply some of those. I didn't really remember them, but I think I must have ta drawn upon them, plus the years of therapy that I'd had. So coming from China, yes. uh, is there any holistic things? Is there, are there any wellness things that you do for yourself that have helped you through this as well? Any yoga, any diksha, any meditation? Yes, I do meditate. But that, um, those disciplines have come only recently. I think most, m the main thing that helped me through this was an underlying rationality and also an absolute sense of trust in myself, ultimately. I was 31 when I started hearing voices, so when the negative voices began weighing in about who I was, if most of the time it was not true, if it were extremely negative. If it was true, I'm honest enough and have always tried to be honest enough that I'd say, you're right, I'm going to try to do better. And by being, by, you know, being honest to that degree and also trusting myself and knowing who I was, who I was independent of my parents, um, allowed me to really counter the negative voices. But how do you know you weren't psychic? You talked about earlier in this program about how you were sitting there editing a piece yes. and a voice told you you missed something a few paragraphs up. To me that sounds psychic. Or it could be that another part of my brain observed that. But 
there is really interesting research that's being done by a couple of friends of mine at uh, at Yale, um, Dr. Al Powers and Dr. Phil Corlett. Phil is a um, PhD neuroscientist. Al is an MD, PhD psychiatry and neuroscience. They did some fascinating research with clairaudient psychics and voice hearers, and they use fMRI imaging. So they scan brains real time, and they um, developed a, a study where they would scan the um, brains of the clairaudient psychics when they said that they were hearing voices and compared them with the brains of uh, people diagnosed with schizophrenia when they were hearing voices and they found that the brains looked very similar. So we are collaborating on uh, or we are trying to get grant funding to um, do more research in order to establish an evidence base for the efficacy of um, so the social supports that are provided through hearing voices support groups, um, certainly, you know, the 12-step program, social supports are hugely, hugely important Absolutely. in helping people understand their difficulties, understanding their own negative self-talk, their anxieties, or in the case of people who hear voices, the voices in our heads. And, and we've found that the voices in our heads really represent unresolved emotion. Um, one of my tendencies to say, everything's fine, everything's fine. I have a tremendous capacity for being superficial. But when I deny, 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 ultimately all of those unresolved emotions rise up. And I found that when I'm deny, deny, denying the, um, the most, my voices, my negative voices become stronger and do come to the fore. I would think that something like that, though, would almost lead to like anxiety and panic. Because you know that it's not right, or you don't want it to happen, but it happens. So was that the case in, in your situation? I was completely panicked the first time. And if you've ever, if you're out there listening, you've ever had a panic attack, they're, they're serious. I mean, and I, I used to have them a uh, few years, oh, years ago. But, and then there's the fear of having another one was debilitating. I, for a year and a half, I couldn't drive on a highway. I don't care where I went, I had to take the back roads because every time I got in my car, I had a panic attack. Yes, I think your um, anxieties manifested themselves in panic attacks. Ours manifest themselves in negative voices. Although I have positive voices and a lot of voice hearers have positive voices. Um, I think that part of the reason that, that I'm on this show that Beth suggested that I do this is that, you know, I am doing some wonderful um advocacy work um, with um, really um, endorsed and encouraged by the connection and this being able to incorporate um, my understanding of my own recovery and moving and helping other people attain a degree of recovery or and or deeper insight into the nature of their voices and the kinds of things that can trigger an onset of um, negative voices um, is really, really important. Absolutely. Just to know that there's someone else out there that's been through what you've been through. Yes. And I think that goes with anything, whether it goes to an incarceration program, a mental illness, you know, drug addiction, alcoholism, whatever. You know, you talk about, you know, 12-step programs. Those are the 
that's the these folks come together we all sit in a room and you know we can look across the room and we all have one thing in common we're all alcoholics yes or drug addicts so um i think that is important and you know you probably thought initially that you were the only one out there that was hearing voices right Right. today you know you were 31 then you've admitted you're not 31 now you have a different perspective on this i do so how can people reach out to you or how can they find more information again the title of the book is hearing voices living fully living with the voices in my head i gotta tell you this is um this was a very compelling read it really was just the things that you went through you know the culture the family uh you know the son the husband all the things that you know most of us go through but we don't go through it with you know dealing with what you've dealt with so what a great fit for you to find you know um a position at the connection and be working there and uh you know just doing your daily life and dealing with what you're dealing with that's the thing we all have something i think right we all have demons we do some of them aren't as apparent as they might be in somebody else but i think we all have them so how do we deal with those and how do we find the resources of the people like us that can help us get through those demons i think that's very very important we've got about a minute left claire so anything that you want to kind of wrap this conversation up with Um, in a nice little bow Yes, I do want to thank NAMI um, for having really encouraged me to begin speaking out because I kept silence for 26 years. What's NAMI? Years. NAMI is the National Alliance on Mental Illness, and I you know, was um, a founding director of NAMI uh, Elm City, the New Haven affiliate, and the Connecticut, Voices, uh, Hear- the Connecticut Hearing Voices Network because NAMI got me to, gave me my voice, and the Connecticut Hearing Voices Network really set me free because I realized I'm a dime a dozen. And I'm not at all. I'm not unusual, and I'm certainly not unique. And really, giving back, helping other people has been one of the most important things about keeping me on task um, and really um, healthy and you know, able to continue living a full life. Great. Well, that's fantastic. And to think that your son now is 31 and living successfully in Chicago, that's fantastic. And Claire, it was nice to get to know you all over again. Um, We have something in common. I learned about your demon and you learned about mine. Yes. And we're more similar than, you know, would appear. Absolutely. And if you want information on this topic or any of the things that we talk about, I urge you to go to theconnectioninc.org. That's theconnectioninc, all one word. Org. Boy, this one went by quickly. Again, thank you to Claire Bien uh, for being on this program. Thanks to you, all of our listeners, for tuning in to this edition of The Connection. We'll see you back here next week, same time, same place, on WTIC News Talk 1080. really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. 